Welcome to The Poison Room, a podcast about oppressive regimes that don't like literature. Last episode, we looked at the young Soloth Saw's formative years and France, his political writings, and the chaotic situation of Cambodian politics at home, which saw a confusing amount of coups, power grabs, rebellions, and of course, an ultimately successful push for independence. After which everything was totally fine, the transition was smooth, there was real democracy, zero fighting, and economic stability. Oh, oh no wait, I remember now. That's, that's not what happened. That's pretty much the opposite of what happened. There were more coups, power grabs, and rebellions. Two of the most dangerous jobs in the country appear to have been journalist and politician. Sihanouk frequently played whack-a-mole with leftist newspapers, or just newspapers that said things he didn't like. Editors were arrested, beaten, and sometimes killed. The same was true for opposition politicians. Sihanouk pushed leftist groups and ideas out of the way, making conditions for opponents increasingly unbearable until they caved, dissolved their parties, and were forced underground. Deteriorating living conditions in Cambodia, caused by Sihanouk's inept economic policies and the neighbouring war in Vietnam, led to increasing unrest, and eventually, in 1970, there was a coup that ousted Sihanouk from power whilst he was out of the country on his annual vacay. Oh, yeah, and Soloth Saw became Pol Pot, leader of the Khmer Rouge. So here's this episode's warning, y'all. It's genocide. I'm trying to hit a balance between doing justice to how horrific things were without going into meticulous, gruesome detail. But if this isn't something you want to hear, then skip this one out and come back next time for the final episode about this topic, which will be about what's happened to literature in Cambodia since the fall of the Khmer Rouge. Yeah, I, I know I said at the start of this topic that it would probably be three episodes, but, you know, research. It happened. So let's get started. Sihanouk was ousted in March of 1970, whilst he was out of the country. He learns about the coup while he's in Beijing, and shockingly chooses not to try and return to Cambodia. Instead, he does two things. He allies with the Khmer Rouge, and he founds a government in exile, called the Royal Government of the National Union of Kampuchea. This would be the banner under which the Khmer Rouge would fight until the end of 1975. At the end of March, Sihanouk broadcast a message to the people of Cambodia, calling on them to take up arms and oppose Lonnol's regime. Pro-Sihanouk riots broke out in the eastern part of the country. One of the first things Lonnol's government had done was tell all the Vietnamese civilians living in Cambodia that they had 48 hours to leave the country. This could in no way be construed as a reasonable demand, but it pleased most people who weren't Vietnamese, since, you know, long history of Vietnam invading them, and decades of various people stoking nationalist sentiments. When the Vietnamese civilians failed to leave, the Cambodian army massacred hundreds of them near Phnom Penh. The failure of the Vietnamese to leave also angered many Cambodians, who then joined the army to, you know, help the situation along, in a calm, orderly fashion, I'm sure. 
Over the next few weeks, thousands of members of the Cambodian army were killed or wounded by the far more experienced Vietnamese guerrilla fighters. By early 1973, around 85% of Cambodia was under the rule of the Khmer Rouge. Between January and August that year, Lon Nol's Khmer Republic government, with the help of the US, dropped an inconceivable amount of bombs on Cambodia. Though I can't tell you exactly what the tonnage was. Dai, Chandler and Kugel, writing in 2007, state that it was roughly half a million tonnes of bombs, and that the most current estimates of how many were killed by this bombing was 300,000 people. But when he wrote Pol Pot's biography a year later, in 2008, Chandler had revised that estimate to 100,000 tonnes of bombs, and states that there is no reliable estimate of the death toll. Whatever the tonnage, and however many the victims, the aid from the US was the only reason that Lon Nol's government could continue fighting up until 1975. But it was also an excellent recruitment tool for the Khmer Rouge. Come join us! We're the ones fighting against the government that just bombed your village. Lots of people joined them. Many of them were just children at the time. The bombing had started in 1970, but when the US withdrew its troops from Vietnam in 1973, it moved its aerial attack forces over to Cambodia, and the bombing intensified and spread across the whole country. In the areas around Phnom Penh, around 3,000 civilians were killed in just three weeks. The bombs were dropped indiscriminately. One young Air Force captain, Donald Dawson, refused to fly any more missions when he learned that a wedding party had been obliterated by one of the bombings. Just as the US had withdrawn its troops from Vietnam, the Viet Minh withdrew its troops from Cambodia. As we know, Cambodians in general had a general suspicion towards the Vietnamese as a whole due to the long and varied history of being invaded by them. The various communist parties in Cambodia resented them in particular because of the controlling way they were treated by the Viet Minh. And now, the Viet Minh withdrawing from supporting the Khmer Rouge's revolution was a betrayal. When the Viet Minh troops withdrew, the leadership of the Khmer Rouge ordered that all of those Cambodians who had come back from Vietnam secretly be executed. They were polluted with the taint of the Vietnamese and couldn't be trusted. This set the precedent for waves of purges that would ultimately lead the party to cannibalise itself. The fighting continued throughout 1974. By early 1975, the Khmer Rouge had all but surrounded Phnom Penh. They cut off the roads, leaving just the Mekong River as a way in and out of the city. In January, the Khmer Rouge mined the Mekong, managing to blow up US ships that were trying to bring in supplies to Phnom Penh. This forced the US to airlift in what military and food supplies it could during February and March, but it's not enough. By the end of March, the airfields were under attack, and back in the US, Congress decided to withdraw aid from Lon Nol's regime. Around the same time, Lon Nol left Cambodia, on the pretext of an informal visit to Indonesia and a trip to Hawaii to get medical treatment there. With him, he took a pension of $1 million awarded to him by the government. No one expected him to return. For his crimes, he got to live out the rest of his life in America. He stayed for a few years in Hawaii, 
then moved to a four-bedroom home in Fullerton, California, where he lived with his wife and several of his nine children. He died of heart failure in 1985, at the age of 72. On the 17th of April, 1975, Phnom Penh fell. There was a mixed response from the inhabitants of the city. Many crowded into the streets, waving pieces of white cloth and welcoming the Khmer Rouge with cheers. The cheering might have represented a sincere hope that this victory would lead to peace and a leadership that would reach across the aisles and do what was best for the country. But they waved white cloth because an announcement over the radio warned people that if they didn't give up their weapons and show a white flag, the Khmer troops would consider this an act of rebellion. In her autobiography, Jarinthi Him remembers the frantic scrabble of her family and those around them to find something white to display on their houses as signs of surrender. She recalled how, after making sure they had their own flag, her father went out to make sure all their neighbours had managed to do the same. She was nine years old at the time. Whilst some cheered, others, fearing what would come, hid. As confirmation of their fears, the Khmer Rouge quickly announced over the radio that high-ranking officials and military leaders from Londol's regime would be executed. The Khmer Rouge rounded up and executed three senior leaders. Lon Nol was long gone, but they executed his brother, who had been a classmate of Saw's when they were young. They also executed the Prime Minister, Long Boret, and Lon Nol's assistant, Prince Sirik Matok. The US had actually offered to evacuate Matok when they abandoned the city, but Matok declined. He wrote a letter to the embassy in response. It's short, so I'm going to quote it in full. I thank you sincerely for your letter and your offer to transport me to freedom. I cannot, alas, leave in such a cowardly fashion. As for you, and in particular your great country, I never believed for a moment that you would have the sentiment of abandoning a people which have chosen liberty. You have refused us protection and we can do nothing about it. You leave, and my wish is that you and your country will find happiness under this sky. But mark it well that if I shall die here on the spot and in my country that I love, it is no matter, because we are all born and must die. I have only committed the mistake of believing in Americans. Please accept, Excellency, my dear friend, my faithful and friendly sentiments. Turns out that abandoning allies that you've been fighting alongside is as American as apple pie. Matak was indeed killed when the Khmer Rouge took the city. His name was top of a list of seven traitors. Not all of the seven were around to be executed. Lon Nol obviously was already out of the country. And so was Song Nok Tan, whose name also appeared on the list. A few hours after taking the city, Khmer Rouge soldiers began firing their guns in the air and ordering everyone to evacuate. They claimed that there was a US bombing raid imminent and that everyone had to leave immediately. They told them not to take their belongings with them, because they would be able to return in a few days. This plan had been agreed in private prior to taking the city, but it was known only to Pol Pot and the very inner circle. By this point, Phnom Penh's population had swollen over the last few years due to the influx of refugees. 
1975, it stood at around 2 million people. The rationale behind the order for evacuation isn't entirely clear. David Chandler suggests a handful of reasons. Firstly, there was a genuine shortage of food in the city. Secondly, the Khmer Rouge considered those who had failed to support the regime as essentially traitors. And in Phnom Penh, there were two million of them for the regime to try and deal with. Thirdly, they may have been concerned for their own security. Fourthly, Phnom Penh was essentially the epitome of everything they had come to resent through their communist ideology. Forcing people out from the corrupting influence of the city and Western culture and into the countryside, the true heart of Cambodian identity, was an ideological victory. On top of that, their plans for the future of Cambodia involved an immediate focus on massive rice production so that the excess could be sold to buy technology. So they needed as many people working in the fields as possible. A survivor, Tida Mam, who was 15 at the time, gave an account in an interview in 2003 of her memory of the day the Khmer Rouge evacuated Phnom Penh. Quote, Along the road to get out of the city, we passed by my school. It was completely looted. The library was gone. All those beautiful, colourful books were gone. They were either burned or used for toilet paper. That's because the Khmer Rouge believed that the only way to change things was to erase everything. Their idea was to get rid of the old system, the class system, and to kill anyone who remembered it. Rumour was they wanted to start the society from scratch, age 12 and up. If they could have burned people's brains, they would have. But they couldn't. So they punished everyone who remembered. End quote. In her biography, written in first person by Joanne Dewey Criddle, Tida Mann recalls the inching progress of the emptying of Phnom Penh and their stay at her brother-in-law's school. Quote, Inching along Monivong Boulevard, we finally reached Kyung's old school. It had taken us four horrendous days to travel less than two miles. We took shelter in the classrooms where Kyung had sat for exams. Charred remains of desks littered the tiled floors where refugees cooked rice. The corners of the rooms were used as toilets. My English school, next door, was a stinking shambles. Windows were smashed, the lovely grounds trampled, trees destroyed. Textbooks had provided fuel and light for squatters. That I could understand, but I could not understand the Khmer Rouge's wanton burning of books. Stacks of books had simply been tossed out of the library windows and set afire. Even the law library was destroyed. Most books in Phnom Penh's many libraries were in French. Ever since our independence from colonial rule 22 years before, Cambodians had felt resentful of continued French influence. But French was undeniably our second language, the language of the educated. It was the language that made contact with the outside world possible. But it wasn't just hatred for the French that prompted the Khmer Rouge to burn books. It seemed to be a hatred for any learning. Books written in Cambodian were also tossed to the ravenous flames, and bookstores, newsstands and stationery shops torched. Rare priceless volumes and special collections had been eliminated without a second's thought. Even illiterate peasants, filing past the burning books, 
were devastated by the senseless destruction. End quote. Another survivor, Somet May, recalls his memories of the evacuation. He was also a child at the time, and his father was a doctor. Quote, I put in my diaries and some of my favourite books, Orwell's Animal Farm, Eric Williams's The Wooden Horse, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, a French textbook called Morger, and an English grammar. My father seemed to take nothing. He burnt the ledgers in which he had written all his research into popular medicine. End quote. As the massive rivers of people trudged out of Phnom Penh, guards at checkpoints along the way searched them for various things. Watches were a particular target of the soldiers, but they also searched for plenty of other now-banned objects, particularly those associated with education and learning. Somet May tells us of his encounter at one of these checkpoints. Quote, They went through every single thing and took all our pens and notebooks away. My bag contained nothing but books. As these fell out, one Khmer Rouge exclaimed, What are these books about? Whose are they? His face had hardened. One of the soldiers picked up the wooden horse and went through it, page by page, upside down, pretending to read it. I turned to my father and realised he was stuck for words. They belong to me, comrades, I replied. I picked them up along the road because I thought they would be good for rolling cigarettes. Well, said the soldier, reading Eric Williams, there are plenty of banana leaves where you're going. You don't need this rubbish. And he threw the wooden horse into a corner of the room, onto a huge pile of photographs and money. End quote. Luckily for Somet May, the soldiers couldn't read. Otherwise, that copy of Animal Farm might have landed him in far more serious trouble. The wooden horse, by the way, is a semi-fictionalised account of the author's escape from a German prisoners of war camp, Stalag Luft III, the same camp that the famous Great Escape would be made from not long after. Back in the city, François Ponchaud, a French priest, stayed behind at the French embassy. In his memoir, he says, quote, I personally saw several trucks filled to the roof with books going past the embassy to the north. I also saw the books from the cathedral library burning on the lawn. The library of the French Far Eastern School a few hundred yards from the embassy was disposed of in the same way on the morning of the 5th of May. But there was little left of value in it, for the most important volumes had been sent to safety in France. End quote. The Catholic cathedral, Buddhist and Islamic temples were all destroyed, leading to the loss of religious texts and statues held within. Those libraries that weren't ransacked or repurposed were padlocked shut and stood abandoned. Books weren't the only targets, of course. The soldiers of the Khmer Rouge destroyed everything associated with Western culture. Along with books, Ponchard talks of furniture, TVs, fridges and other kitchen appliances being transported to a huge bonfire. The evacuation of the cities was devastating. Every survivor account recalls seeing dead bodies left and decaying along the roadside as they slowly made their way out of the cities. They talk about women dying in childbirth along the sides of the roads. 
They talk about people being detained at checkpoints, then led away, out of sight, followed by the sound of shooting. They talk about families separated and turned away or even shot if they tried to turn back to try and find their loved ones. One of the people who died in the evacuation of Phnom Penh was Soloth Choi, Pol Pot's brother, the journal editor. Purges of those who were educated, teachers, doctors and government workers, continued in the following weeks, as those evacuated from the city were slowly moved around the country. Here are another few extracts from Tida Mam's account of the period immediately after the eviction from Phnom Penh. Quote, Two and a half weeks after the eviction, a call was issued for men in certain categories to return to Phnom Penh to begin the reconstruction. Those encouraged to volunteer included former government leaders, military officers, doctors, lawyers, business leaders, educators and professional men, and skilled workmen such as engineers, plumbers, electricians and mechanics. Families of these men were to remain in the temporary camps a little longer. Two days later, a Voice of America broadcast reported that 85 government officials had just been executed. We learned much later that bodies of thousands who had answered the call to rebuild were stacked in public buildings, such as Tool Slang High School. They had been tricked to their own executions. After the men had left, allegedly to restore Phnom Penh, portable loudspeakers blared the awful truth. There would be no return to the city for us. Leave, they ordered. Go find a place in the villages. Cities are evil. Technology is evil. Money and trade are evil. In the new Cambodia, the officers loudly boasted, there would be no modern means of communication. No mail service or telephones. No newspapers. No border crossings. No trains, cars, buses or planes. The evil ways of the Western world were outlawed, all ties to the past abolished. This was a new era, year zero. Not many occupations would be needed. No merchants, no bankers, no teachers, lawyers or civil servants. No doctors, dentists or dressmakers trained in the corrupt ways of the West. No railroad engineers, pedicab drivers, cooks, waiters, maids. Not even truck drivers or housewives. These people had been leeches on society consuming the harvest of the true labourer. End quote. The Khmer Rouge held these city dwellers in contempt. They were referred to as the new people, and were treated as inferiors, which is obviously how things are supposed to work under communism. Survivors remember being told, to keep you is no gain, to lose you is no loss. They were seen as entirely expendable. They were contaminated with French imperial and colonial ideas and notions from Western culture, from the technology they used to their level of education, all counted against them. But it wasn't just the urban dwellers that were held in contempt by the Khmer Rouge. Education and urban lifestyles went against their concepts of what a Khmer person should be, because, you know, communism. But something else that's not big and popular in most communist ideologies is the whole religion thing. Opiate of the masses and all that. However, in Cambodia, 
the overwhelming majority of the country was Buddhist. It was integral to society. Many children received their only education at the temples of Buddhist monks. The intellectual groups of the Sangha were an important cultural and political force. When Lon Nol's coup ousted Sihanouk, members of the Sangha and the monks were split. Buddhism had been associated with the monarchy for centuries in Cambodia, so it made sense that many would support Sihanouk, and thus encourage support for the revolutionary movement. Others, however, supported Lon Nol, and argued that Buddhism is more compatible with democracy. After all, the Buddha had turned his back on the life of a prince to pursue that of a recluse. Amusingly, that was an argument Pol Pot had used back in his first writing, Monarchy or Democracy. Now, of course, Pol Pot's groups are allied with Sihanouk, and the Khmer Rouge are happy to accept support from the monks in preaching their cause to the masses. In a statement in 1970, the revolutionaries claimed that Buddhism was fundamental to the future of Cambodia, and that all religions were to be protected under their regime they would all be guaranteed their freedom. Just to reassure everyone, when the Khmer Rouge seized power in 1975, they actually enshrined the right to freedom of religion in Article 20 of their new constitution. They did, however, also demote Buddhism from the position of official state religion and banned any of the oracle or prophecy nonsense stuff. Also, in a conference in May the previous year, the leaders had shared with the party an eight-point programme, which included defrocking the monks and forcing them to labour, growing rice alongside everyone else. It also planned for the complete dismantling of the Sangha. Normally, defrocking would have been a religious matter. It's something that happened within the confines of the religion. It would be senior monks and leaders of the Wats who defrocked those who had broken the tenets of Buddhism. It was not an external affair. Remember the whole march that happened because the government arrested Hem Shu and didn't let him complete the necessary ritual for leaving the temple? Yeah, like that. But the Khmer Rouge made the monks disrobe and joined the forced labourers in the fields. Between October and December of 1975, the Khmer Rouge had the vast majority of those monasteries that had survived America's bombing campaign and remained open, closed. In several instances, books and manuscripts stored in various pagodas, wats and monasteries were deliberately destroyed, but a lot of the damage was done during the bombing in the 1970-75 period. Under the Khmer Rouge, religious buildings were repurposed to serve as prisons, interrogation centres and torture centres, which meant that texts would just be discarded or thrown out to make way for other things. The end result was the same, of course, but it wasn't a deliberate targeting of the Buddhist literature so much as a total failure to care about it or about fellow humans. Buddhism was one thing. Belonging to minority religions and ethnicities was much worse. To belong to a minority ethnicity marked you as not true Khmer. Every minority group in Cambodia was unwanted and unwelcome. One of those minority groups was the Sham Muslims. There's one particular Sham community I want to tell you about. The village of Koh Pal, the island of Harvest. 
Kopal had been under Khmer control since at least 1973. But up until 1975, efforts to control them had been, well, someone would come into the village, tell them that they had to change X, Y or Z, and they would refuse. Then they would be left alone for a while. Later, a representative of the Khmer Rouge would return and tell them other things they had to change. They would ignore these orders, and the Khmer Rouge would just disappear again. But this changed in 1975. Now, the details of what exactly happened have been reconstructed from survivor accounts. Yusat Osman interviewed survivors and collected their testimonies, and his book, The Sham Rebellion, gives the fullest account of what happened. There are some contradictions between the accounts, which is not surprising given that Issa Osman was conducting these interviews between 1999 and 2001, and these events happened back in 1975. But the differences are largely exactly what you'd expect in terms of the reliability of any eyewitness account. They differ over how many people were killed at what point, and what the names of some of the people killed in specific events were. The core details remain the same. Given his world expertise in the subject, I'm going to trust the accuracy of the core events he's reconstructed. In September 1975, on the 10th day of Ramadan, officials from the Khmer Rouge arrived in Kopal and convened a meeting in the village's mosque, declaring that everyone had to attend. Despite this, around 30 villagers chose not to attend, and instead hid out, preparing to resist, should worse come to worst. The meeting began at 1pm. The district chairman ridiculed Islam in his speech, and announced two things to the villagers. First, 40 village elders and religious leaders would be removed from the village. Secondly, the village was going to have to follow a five-point plan. Women were going to be forbidden from covering their heads and were required to cut their hair short. The villagers would have to raise pigs and eat pork. Places of worship were to be closed and no more canonical prayers would be held. In all future marriages, the villagers would be required to marry someone who was non-Muslim. Finally, all copies of the Quran were to be rounded up and burned. It goes without saying that all of these things were deeply offensive to the villagers of Kopal. As a deliberate slight, the officials dragged the meeting on for hours, forcing the villagers to miss late afternoon worship. The meeting was still going on at 6pm, the time at which the fasting villagers should have been eating their fast-breaking meal and performing ritual ablutions before the twilight prayer. Eventually, someone interrupted the meeting and made the call to prayer, and the villagers filed out of the mosque to prepare. Outside, the 30 men who had hidden approached the meeting site. The Khmer Rouge official called the meeting to a halt and left the village with his men. The next week, the official sent a messenger to the village to summon the 40 village elders and religious leaders and to collect the villagers' Qurans. He leaves alone and empty-handed. In the wake of these events, the villagers decided that, should the Khmer Rouge return, they would have to fight. They prepared their weapons, swords, knives and axes. 
A week later, the Khmer Rouge attacked two young men who had been tending cattle in the fields. They killed one and captured the other, releasing him a week later to return to the village with a message. The Khmer Rouge would return in a few days to destroy the village. A few days later, the Khmer Rouge surrounded the village with troops and artillery. A few villagers who went out to scout the situation under the pretext of tending their fields were sent back with another message from the Khmer Rouge. The village would be destroyed that afternoon. But the Khmer Rouge did not strike that afternoon. After nightfall, they sent a boat up to the village, broadcasting a message that the villagers should surrender and join the revolutionary organisation. None do. The next morning, a boat full of armed soldiers docked near the village. Six villagers charged them, but all were shot and killed. The soldiers then advanced toward the village, encountering another group of ten men. They killed all bar one of them. But after this, they stopped. They didn't enter the village. They didn't have their support yet. Their backup was being held up by having to advance through thick bamboo groves. The soldiers returned to their boat and left. The villagers took the opportunity to retrieve the bodies of the dead and bury them. Then they dug four large grave pits in preparation for further losses. The next day, the Khmer Rouge bombarded the village with artillery fire. Buildings burned. Homes, schools and the mosque were all destroyed. Hundreds of Sham defenders died as they tried to attack the Khmer troops. But they had knives and swords. The Khmer Rouge had guns. The Khmer Rouge retreated for the night and renewed their assault the next day. By the afternoon, they had entered the village. In an interview with Yisar Osman, Survivor Smam At described what he remembered. Quote, On the fifth day, the Khmer Rouge raided the village once again. Beginning at dawn, the ground quaked with the reverberations of artillery. Automatic fire from boats raked the riverbanks. The fighting this day was ghastly since the attackers penetrated into the village and shot people indiscriminately. The defenders still would not surrender. I continued to carry out my task of recovering and burying bodies. Under a milkwood tree on a spot of higher ground near Talib's house, I found so many villagers lying dead and wounded that I could not carry them all. A slope running down to the river nearby the dock flowed with blood, so much that the river water nearby ran red. On this day, I was only able to bury 46 out of the hundreds of bodies that were scattered on the battlefield. At sundown, some villagers dropped their knives and swords and just swam for their lives. End quote. The Khmer Rouge fired at everyone. Men, women, children, the elders, the sick. They gunned them all down. Those that were left saw that the fight was hopeless. Some hid in the village and on the island. Others fled in boats and others swam. Those that remained were found and rounded up. They were divided into four groups and sent to different villages. Malaria was rife in all of the villages. 
Around three months later, about a third of the survivors were moved to a different province. Of those left behind in the villages, nearly all died. In two of the villages, there were no reported survivors. All had died from disease or starvation. According to eyewitnesses who had been near the village at the time, the Khmer Rouge burnt it to the ground after they had captured it. They renamed it Kope, the Island of Ashes. Today, there are 49 mass graves surrounding the site where the village stood. Yusau puts the number of dead from the assault on the village at around 1,000 people, with 900 evacuees. When one survivor, Rez Tort, returned in 1980, he reported that in total, only 183 people had survived. I should note that in some of the eyewitness accounts, the survivors reported that the Korans were collected and burned before the village was attacked. But in the events as Yusau reconstructs them, the villagers never gave up their Korans. Similar, or equally horrific events, happened in other Sham villages. In the village of Savoy Kliang, 600 people returned after the fall of Pol Pot's regime, out of a previous population of over 6,000. 25 years later, when they ploughed the land, villagers were still discovering prayer books, copies of the Koran that had been buried to hide them, and the remains of those killed. The Khmer Rouge took power on the 17th of April, 1975. Their reign lasted three years, eight months and twenty days. With their reign, they declared that 2,000 years of Cambodian history had come to an end. Estimates are frequently hard to make, but maybe as many as 400,000 died directly at the hands of the Khmer Rouge. Hundreds of thousands of others died from starvation, overwork, disease and neglect. Over the next two years, the citizens evacuated from the cities were forced to work in miserable conditions for 10 to 12 hours a day, every month of the year. They were ordered to hack back the forest, a hotbed for malaria, in order to make way for rice fields, canals, dams and villages. Tens of thousands of people died following these orders. Western medicine was banned, leading to innumerable deaths from curable conditions. Their deaths did not bother the Khmer Rouge. Pol Pot's plans for Cambodia's future depended on huge, successful rice yields. But they did not appear. The harvest was much lower than expected, and most people in the northwest of the country were significantly malnourished by the end of 1976. Food that should have been designated for their own consumption was instead designated as surplus. In 1977, the harvest was still much lower than expected, and thousands more died of starvation. Illness and malnutrition took its toll on the ability of the people to work. Rations were reduced further still in 1978. In the city... Sihanouk had been invited to return back in July of 1975. He presided over cabinet meetings, but wasn't allowed to speak himself. A few weeks later, the Khmer Rouge sent him to take up Cambodia's seat at the UN. In January of 1976, a new constitution had been announced. It guaranteed no human rights, and effectively abolished private property 
organised religion and family-oriented agricultural production. In March 1976, National Assembly elections were held. Pol Pot was elected as a representative of the rubber workers in the Eastern Zone. The new people, those who hadn't participated in the revolution and had been forced from the cities, were not allowed to be nominated or to vote. The Assembly met only once when it approved the new constitution. In a meeting held at the end of March, the Central Committee decided that it was time for Sihanouk to retire. He was still very popular with the people, so executing him would be unwise, but as far as Pol Pot and his committee were concerned, he had outlived his usefulness. By April, he was under house arrest at the palace. An announcement was made that a monument would be erected in his honour, and that he would be paid an annual pension of $8,000. Neither of these things happened. Sihanouk stayed under house arrest at the palace until January of 1979, when he was sent to the UN on a diplomatic mission. For the next year and a half, Pol Pot and his central committee operated in secret, known only to the people as Anka. Finally, in September of 1977, in a five-hour speech recorded for Phnom Penh Radio, Pol Pot finally revealed the existence of the Communist Party of Cambridgeshire. Even before the Khmer Rouge had come to power, they had already begun purging their ranks. The quiet assassinations in 1973 of those Cambodians who had been trained by the Viet Minh wasn't an isolated incident, but part of an escalating series of purges. In September of 1976, even before the existence of the party had been announced, the party secretary of the northeastern zone, Ne Suron, was arrested. A few days later, Kyo Mies, the guy who had been the public chairman of the Prashirshon group, was also arrested. Both men were sent to Tuo Sleng, a former high school in Phnom Penh that was now being used as hell on earth, I guess. Think Abu Ghraib. It was known as S-21. It was used as a prison and interrogation centre. And yes, interrogation involves an awful lot of torture. When the Khmer Rouge were eventually ousted, archives of over 4,000 confessions were discovered in S-21. Probably around 14,000 people, men, women, and children, were taken to S-21. If you were arrested, your family would be arrested too. Anyone who knew you would be under suspicion. And all it took to land you under suspicion in the first place was your name being mentioned in the confessions of three other people. Of course, when confessions are extracted under extreme duress, people tend to say whatever they think will make the torture stop. 4,000 confessions were discovered in S21 when the liberators took Phnom Penh, but the people who made them were gone. Of the 14,000 that were taken to S21, all but a handful were interrogated, tortured, and put to death. Instead of finding prisoners they could free, the troops who entered S21 found the bodies of the regime's final victims still tied down to the bed frames on which they had been tortured and killed. Over the course of the Khmer Rouge's rule, Pol Pot became increasingly paranoid that people within the party were CIA agents or plotting against him or working with the Vietnamese. 
The confessions extracted at S21 only fueled that feeling. In the earlier period, the purges tended to focus on members who were former Lon Nol soldiers, or who had been educated in North Vietnam, excluding Pol Pot, of course. The crisis caused by the particularly low rice yields in the northern parts of the country was blamed on enemies within the party working against the common cause, and the soldiers and officers from those areas were assassinated. In time, the purges spread to other areas of the country, and within the party's higher echelons, it spread to those who had been educated abroad, or had been educated at all, groups which should have included Pol Pot and Yang Sari, and many high-ranking members of the party who had been students in France around the same time as Pol Pot. But when are ideological tyrants ever consistent? Again, the numbers are hard to estimate accurately, but maybe as many as 100,000 people were put to death in these purges. And just as with S21, if you disappointed the party, your family might very well share your fate. The cannibalisation of the party makes it clear how unstable the regime was. Increasingly, Pol Pot focused on Vietnam as a source of potential enemies within the party, and as a threat to the country. By 1977, hostility towards Vietnam was a key part of study sessions held by the party. The hostility toward Vietnam was also, ultimately, the largest factor in the fall of the Khmer Rouge's regime. Right from the start of the regime, there had been periodic attacks on Vietnam by the Khmer Rouge. The offensive ramped up in mid-1977, and in December, in response to attacks and incursions from the Khmer Rouge, Vietnam launched an incursion that managed to get 20 kilometres across the border and into Cambodia. In response, the Khmer Rouge broke off diplomatic relations with Vietnam, stating that they wouldn't engage in any negotiations until Vietnam had withdrawn its troops from Cambodia. When the Vietnamese withdrew, they took thousands of prisoners with them, and instead of negotiating with the Khmer Rouge, the Vietnamese instead decided to start training Cambodians to oppose the regime and encourage rebellion. They formed a new group to act as an opposition party that could be installed once Pol Pot was ousted the United Front for the National Salvation of Kampuchea. Vietnam launched a major assault at the very end of 1978, and on the 7th of January they captured Phnom Penh. The rule of the Khmer Rouge was over. But the Khmer Rouge didn't just disappear. The leaders of the party had fled the city before the invading forces had reached it. They set themselves up along the Thai border, and continued to be political and military players for the next decade. In August of 1996, Yang Sari defected to the royal government, followed by other party leaders, including Nguyen Gia. Pol Pot died in 1998, and the only remaining leader was captured a year later. In an obvious sense, all genocides are also cultural genocides. A people and their culture are inextricably linked. But the Khmer Rouge also specifically targeted Cambodian culture. As Rebecca Nuth puts it, the Khmer Rouge, quote, took Cambodian society to the brink of cultural annihilation in attempts to purify it, end quote. They targeted educated people and those who could educate and the tools by which they could educate. 
by the end of the reign of the Khmer Rouge, there were no printing presses left in the country. A 1997 estimate suggests that around 95% of Cambodian journalists were killed under the Khmer Rouge's regime. Libraries were destroyed, books were burned, discarded, or used to light fires, roll cigarettes, or as toilet paper. There was no place for them in Pol Pot's Cambodia. The man who had earned a scholarship to study in France, and then presented as a teacher in Phnom Penh while organising his party, made sure that the opportunities that were available to him were never available to anyone else. Around 2 million people died during the decade of the 1970s, the vast majority of them during the reign of the Khmer Rouge. The total population of the country had been just under 8 million. As Rebecca Gnath grimly notes, quote, Ultimately, conditions were created in which the physical obliteration of texts became unnecessary. There was no one left to read them. End quote. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe on whatever podcatcher you're using. Rate and review the show, especially on iTunes. If you have questions, comments, corrections, feedback, want to suggest a topic, or want to send me some cute animal pics to cheer me up after reading too much about S21, you can find the podcast on Twitter at PoisonRoomPod or send an email to poisonroompodcast at gmail.com. Alternatively, just be kind to people. Transcripts of all episodes are available at poisonroom.com, where you can also see the references and bibliography. As always, if the sources are publicly available, they're linked to. You have been listening to The Poison Room, a podcast that sometimes covers really awful topics that should never be forgotten. The voice in your ears has been pretty sad while doing a lot of this research.